Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. It's possible some listeners may recognize my voice because I'm occasionally on this program. If we met in person, you might even recognize my face because I'm occasionally on television or more prosaically, I might live near you. But if you know my face, you have me at a disadvantage because even if we go to the same shops, I'll probably never know yours. I have a condition medically called prosopagnosia, but commonly known as face blindness. That is when the condition is known at all, even by people who have it. Indeed, I was 61 and three quarters before realising this medical condition existed. Until then, I just presumed I was a bit stupid, and casual acquaintances probably presumed I was a bit rude not to acknowledge them if we passed in a location different from where we normally met. Hopefully, not too many people taught me impolite. Over time, people like me develop strategies to cope in public. Because my brain cannot memorise facial details and I only recognise close friends, I pretend to recognise anyone who nods at me. I greet folk with a generic, there you are now, desperately hoping that their opening remark will reveal their identity. Navigating crowds is difficult for anyone with face blindness. Some develop social anxiety disorder, overwhelmed by fears of venturing out. This isn't an option for writers who must occasionally meet the public. The Abbey Theatre is staffed by talented, dedicated theatre professionals. Whenever I've been fortunate enough to have my play staged there, I have found that amid the tension and euphoria of high-wire live performances, many female cast members and crew are liable to greet me with a platonic kiss. One night... Having successfully navigated a packed abbey bar full of well-wishers whom I didn't recognise, I was relieved to reach the stairs. Then a woman waved excitedly and ran towards me. My theatre stratagem kicking in, I automatically kissed her. She stepped back, shocked. I thought you were my uncle, but you're not, she said. I don't recognise you. Why are you kissing me? I apologise, I said, and didn't mean to seem forward. I barely recognise anyone in this bar, but half of them insist on kissing me. I am the Blarney Stone of Irish Theatre. Thankfully, she laughed, but it highlighted the dangers of this syndrome, of rarely being sure of anyone's identity and needing to scramble for clues because people get insulted if you ask them straight out who they are. My fellow sufferers apparently include Alan Alda and Brad Pitt. In an Esquire interview, Pitt describes how people's features fade from his mind as he walks away from them, even after long conversations, and how anxious he can be in some social gatherings, fearful that people may think him arrogant for not recognising them. Research shows that facial recognition is dependent on a network of brain regions across the left and right hemispheres. With certain people, various factors disrupt these connections from birth. This is called developmental prosopagnosia. There is also acquired prosopagnosia caused by brain damage after a head injury. In Britain, 
NHS figures suggest the condition affects 2% of people. This would make for roughly 100,000 of us in Ireland. This condition affects no other part of the memory. When people introduce themselves by name, I can tell them things about themselves from decades ago because writers have magpie brains storing away stories. And I manage to recognise people when I meet them in their everyday context. The newsagent with whom I discuss Ireland's soccer woes or the football awaiting me on the first tee. But in social situations, I need to focus on clues to memorise. People's vices, the colours of their dresses, the shape of their glasses, someone's height or weight, details that stay lodged in my mind. Luckily, I'm not as bad as some people with this, because in extreme cases, they can't recognise their own face in the mirror. This only happened to me once, in my misspent youth, when I passed out at a party and a fellow poet shaved off my beard without telling me, but that's another story. During that misspent youth, I never met dates under Cleary's clock in case I walked past them. I'd arranged to meet on O'Connor Bridge so I could gaze out at the Liffey, seemingly lost in thought while letting them approach me. I never told them because I didn't know that a medical term existed for this neurological disorder. Even if I did, I'd have been too embarrassed. But it shouldn't be embarrassing. Now, when anyone stops me and we happily chat, I tell them, if we meet again, please just say your name or I'll blithely walk past. That would be a pity because I love talking to people. So I'm telling you all this now because you may know someone whom you always considered aloof who may suffer from this condition. If you pass me, say hello. If nothing else, it will be your chance to chat with someone who, in one respect only, is remarkably like Brad Pitt. Nineteen seventy-nine, two young teachers planning a honeymoon, sitting in the offices of Joe Walsh Tours on a grey January day in Pembroke Street, Cork, and flicking through brochures full of sun-drenched beaches and exotic-looking hotels. Getting married seemed worth it just for the chance to spend two weeks in the sun. Of course, we picked the cheapest package tour. It was all we could afford. Rimini, Italy, the Hotel Alaska. No sea views, but only three streets from the beach, full board, breakfast, lunch and dinner, and, of course, guaranteed sun. Rimini, where Dante's Paolo and Francesca fell in love. We arrived on the 1st of July, in the dead of night, to an oppressive heat that we could never have imagined. Then what seemed an endless bus ride through darkened roads surrounded by low-rise hotels and apartment blocks, until finally we disembarked at Hotel Alaska at two in the morning, just us two honeymooners and a Dublin couple who seemed to be old hands at the package tour game. We were greeted by the sleepy owner, who promptly told us there was a problem. Not speaking any Italian, 
we had no idea what the problem was until we were shown to our small box room. A box room with bunk beds. Bunk beds on the first night of our honeymoon. Champagne, the owner told us. One night, then champagne. To cap it all, instead of guaranteed sunshine, we had three days of thunderous downpours and three nights in bunk beds. Amor vincit omnia, Virgil wrote. Love conquers all. Our marriage somehow survived a box room, bunk beds and downpours, and at the end of it we did indeed get champagne, or at least spumante, and a beautiful new room with a balcony looking out on a quiet street, the eternal gratitude of the hotel owner, and a colony of determined ants, which we kept at bay by sprinkling the floor around the bed with aftershave at night. The aftershave, of course, was Old Spice. No 70s marriage was complete without it. The Dublin couple turned out to be a bit strange. Because we were Irish, the hotel assumed we would want to sit together, so we found ourselves with them for lunch and dinner. We quickly learned that they disapproved of our habit of drinking wine. I tried the old adage, when in Rome do as the Romans do, but they weren't swallowing it. It was wine for us and water for them. The waiter arrived on the first day with the question, red or white, and a two-litre bottle was put on our table with our room number on a little metal plaque dropped over the neck on a chain. After lunch, the bottle was taken away and brought back again for dinner. Whether you were drinking red or white, you were offered ice. When we finished one bottle, another of the same colour appeared, no questions asked. The Dubliners touched not a drop. So we formed the opinion that they were teetotalers until we asked them what they did after dinner. It turned out there was an excellent British pub called the Bulldog just around the corner and you could get Guinness there. At night, the main drag was a hot mess of slot machines, discos and bars. Scantily clad people of both sexes spilled out onto the street, singing and dancing and embracing wildly in several languages. Fiat 500s cruised up and down with all the windows open, studying the talent. Rimini, by night, circa 1979, the sound of madness. But the beach was the greatest shock. Where I came from, a beach was a place you went to swim or to fish, and we didn't call them beaches, we called them strands. My only previous exposure to beach culture was a single trip with English cousins to Yall on a busy August bank holiday. At least my wife grew up near Tremor, so she had some idea of what to expect. I was dumbfounded. Why weren't they swimming? Isn't that what beaches are for? But there were literally thousands of people on sunbeds, under umbrellas, toasting themselves above and below, oiling each other, eating elaborate picnics, playing cards, doing crosswords, arguing about food and politics. Almost everybody ignored the actual sea. It was a completely alien existence. And to cap it all, the Adriatic turned out to be, as regards temperature, a very large bath and you needed to wade for a mile before it came up to your waist. Then, at the end of the first week, we came across the pedalos and we were saved. We made a bargain with the man who rented them that we would teach him some words of English and in return he would rent us the pedalo for the entire day at a special rate. That was how we discovered there was a sandbank 
a long way out, too far for most people, especially Italians, who weren't that interested in being alone anyway. We could run the pedalo aground there and sunbathe and swim alone to our heart's content. We started to bring a picnic. We brought our books. It was gloriously quiet. We even brought a sun umbrella. We had finally found the appropriate distance from which to view the romance of Rimini, and we were happy. This is how we fell in love with Italy, from a sandbank on the edge of the city where Paolo and Francesca fell in love. che un sogno così non ritorni mai più mi dipingevo le mani e la faccia di blu poi d'improvviso venivo dal vento rapito e incominciavo a volare The atmosphere in the school laboratory had thickened with anxiety One of our number in fifth-year biology had ruined an electron microscope demonstration. The one-celled organism, paramecium, hung before us in an over-enthusiastically administered dose of formaldehyde and methanol. It lay quite still. Dead, in fact, eliminating all possibility of observing its hair-like cilia propelling it through the aqueous solution. Sister Linus, Passionate about biology, eager to demonstrate all aspects of life to her girls, stared tight-lipped at the little organism on the screen, frozen in its red-tinged lethal liquids. It was interesting to watch her self-control as she spat out her next instructions, discarding paramecium and moving us on to view an onion skin through individual microscopes. Much safer territory, as it turned out and an epiphany for me. The sight of the activity within these cells, the visibility of what had hitherto been mere terms of description, took root, filling me with a curiosity to scrutinise the very close-up, the invisible but present, that has endured my whole life. For here was a working world undiscernible to the naked eye. Epidermis, cells, vacuole and nucleus. The sight of the tiny nucleus, that little dark and busy heart of everything, changed my view of everything. At that moment, it felt powerful to be alive, to know myself filled with nuclei, aware of the zillions of cellular lives in the self-regulating organism of my own body. After leaving school, I studied humanities, not sciences, and left the microscope behind. I used cameras ineffectively, as the world of the visual hovered between the now-discarded old Kodak, Leica and Zeiss cameras of the 1960s, and in the 1970s produced odd-coloured, slightly out-of-focus images from a little Fuji 35mm cartridge camera. All our honeymoon shots were taken with this, including my attempt to photograph a stationary seagull close up in the sunshine of Kilmore Quay. The hunt for capturing something clear and defined became an obsession, 
and over the years I went through a succession of cameras, including a beautiful Canon which required me to half learn something about f-stops or the amount of light that enters the camera lens, a misunderstanding of which resulted in some peculiar shots from a holiday in Turkey. But along came digital photography. In a second epiphany, I now had the means of closing in on my subject, even from a distance, and adjusting everything to my liking. With the camera, I had the zoom lens, but with my everyday phone, as everybody knows, the capacity to zone in on smaller subjects and reveal them in all their glory is virtually unlimited. And why? Because of the range of filters. I love filters. I adore this subjective mechanism at my disposal, which allows me to create an atmosphere and not just a realistic scene. The city street is one of my favourite subjects, especially as a monochrome shot, in which light and shades of neutral grey from black to white are shown. I admire the iconic photographs of history. The work of Robert Doisneau is an example, and his Picasso about to eat bread, or Les Animaux Supérieurs, the slightly painful depiction of a tethered monkey displayed before an entertained crowd, inspire in me a desire to try different things for myself using filters. The monochrome image is instantly timeless. Having tried both colour and monochrome around Dublin and other cities, There's no contest if I want to find a route into a place and sense something more than the here and now. I've captured corners of Upper Leeson Street, Wintry Mountjoy Square, Great Denmark Street, Parnell Square on a hot evening from upstairs in the Irish Writers' Centre and the North Quays at rush hour in rain. Yes, I've captured them. For surely I'm a casual vandal of the visual, playing around, experimenting with brickwork, sharpening it texturally as I try to make sense of something I don't fully understand. But what I know is that whether it's the nucleus of an onion skin cell or something in the outer world, a defensive swan on Donadee Lake, a restaurant canopy during a rainstorm in Brazil when I dined by myself and felt both heat and intense humidity as water danced on the street outside. Some mysterious circle is closed when I choose how a photograph should look. Swan feathers, to sharpen, to soften or to deepen in hue. The decisions are endless. Edges of buildings and when in colour, the contrast between sky and the render on the building, cladding, colour, concrete, rust-coloured steel, all these are transmitted messages as I learn to answer the still-fizzing questions about what it is to be alive. The first time the silent action within an onion-skinned cell was revealed to me, I was moved. Ever since, it's been a habit, one I continue with, seeking the silent action those vandal acts of light and shade and the accompanying feeling.
Pleone. Pleone will give you all the time you need, if only you could find her. She's more sea nymph than anything. She tell you herself, but where is she? She minded the flocks too, that's how she got her name. You can roam around all day calling her name. She'll grant you that indulgence. Be careful never to call her little Bo Peep. She hates lame humour. People call their yachts after her. They could do less. You could have sworn you caught a glimpse of her at the Maxall garage filling up the SUV. It will never be her. She will have left long ago for the last comet home. Orion looked for her for seven years and couldn't find her. This was before he stepped on a scorpion. The poor Amadon never heard of the eggshell approach. Pleone's daughters were sick with grief. Zeus took pity on them and turned all seven into stars. Look up, while the Pleiades shimmer, they don't always shine. My mother used to wear a girdle. She rolled it up over her hips and belly to her waist, then put on her stockings, right, left, snapping them onto the corset with a dangling fastener. I watched her do this as I pulled myself up to stand, holding onto the bed. Sometimes she held my hands as she danced and I jigged to her rhythm. Years later, I looked at boned corsets in fashion magazines, ribbons, dark stockings and black lace. But these had nothing to do with the boned leotards and corsets my mother wore, her roll-on and her casual relationship with it, and she dumped the roll-on later for tights. I'm deepening my studies in somatic movement because of a torn meniscus, and I'm attempting to change habitual ways of walking and dancing that are hurting my knee. Soma means body, and somatic movement is all about sensing and how the body feels from the inside in contrast to focusing on how it is perceived from the outside or in the dancer's mirror. My meniscus is healing, but I can't bend my knee fully. I wouldn't be able to kneel, for example, the way my grandmother did in the church pew, her wide hips decently corseted, a black mantilla on her white hair. The word corset is a diminutive of the old French word corps, meaning body, derived from the Latin word corpus. The word, therefore, means little body. When I was 16, the romances I read often described how the man could fully encircle the woman's waist with his hands. And I used to measure my waist, wondering if I could bring it down from 22 inches to 20. I never thought of a corset. Historically, corsets used whalebone, reed, ivory and then metal. Mothers often corseted and tight-laced their girl children, even as they slept, to make sure they would have a tiny waist. 
despite the health risks, such as damaged or rearranged internal organs. In 1873, Elizabeth Stuart Phelps Ward wrote, Burn up the corsets. No, you will never need whalebones again. Make a bonfire of the cruel steels. But no, the corset has a life of its own. And with the film Moulin Rouge, there was a fashion revival. And we still use carefully designed tight underwear to pull in the belly. And this focus on being thin has become worse. I am thinking of all this as I watch a Feldenkrais movement teacher demonstrating how our back is weakened when we pull in our bellies. And a friend of mine told me recently that she pulls her tummy in when she goes into a social situation. Our bodies are affected by prejudices, fashions, culture, aesthetics and how they are perceived from the outside. As a young woman, I played along with it, learning now what dancing in high heels did to my feet, legs and back and the effect of my show business mother, encouraging me to think of how I looked on the outside, how I looked to the audience, because she had also been brainwashed to think like this. But our bodies are also holding hurt trauma and injuries, psychological, emotional and physical. Dance body and movement practitioners are leading the way with different disciplines and somatic movement therapy, teaching how to dissolve and release trauma from the body. And I'm heartened as I watch my niece, Rachel, teaching acrobatic dance to her students, supporting them to find strength and stability from the feet up and from the inside out. Someone asked me the other day why I say dance is good for, but can also be bad for the body. And it is because of this judging the body from the outside and trying to fashion it into something the brain thinks is beautiful, instead of listening deeply to the instinctual, sensual intelligence in the body and moving from there. But even that idea was unavailable to my mum. She held her hurts inside and managed to tap dance, sing, and smile like Ginger Rogers. I remember following her to the bathroom in that restaurant near the home. She had a walker then. Her pelvis was twisted. Her legs didn't work properly and it was difficult and painful to stand and sit. She was furious at her body for wearing out. But her makeup was perfect and she knew how to pose for a photograph. She was brave. Once I lay in the cradle of her pelvis, pulsed with her rhythms. I see her again struggling to walk down the aisle in that restaurant and I want to put my arms around her and gather her up. I hold the table and stand, making sure I don't put too much weight on my injured knee and that my ankles, knees and hips are aligned. I walk slowly across the kitchen floor. The knee pops and clicks like a shaman's rattle. I blow smoke into the bones of my ancestors and they turn softer in the earth. I was dancing when I was 12. I was dancing when I was 12. I was dancing when I was out.
the winds come, knifing in over the Ordon. They shiver the winds, the fragrant furs, make me feel thin amidst them, skinny, exposed and cold. Ordon, the book says, platform, hillock, mound. A dog is barking insistently somewhere over the fields, and a donkey brays in the distance, a huge complaint. Camper vans and caravans go by, and there, below and out beyond the village, the sea, the abandoned pier, and the crusty bones of dried-out kelp. There is nothing new under the wind here, where bogland growth lies low, hoarding its dark blue bilberries, the lilac-coloured ling, the stone crop. I have long been acquainted with these harsh winds, together with the rains, the island's constancy and currency. But I am shriveling now before them, like a bush or tree stunted, little shelter left. I shrug myself deeper within my greatcoat, knowing old faith has grown to a hard knot of will and doubt, and I, a gentleman, schlep like an eldering mountain goat that comes clattering down, stone against stone, and bone on bone. Adam, the good book tells, lived on nine hundred and thirty years, finally passed away into the staggered pages of the big book. Methuselah stuck it out for some nine hundred and sixty-nine years before he learned how to die. But Enoch, who knew how to walk with God at the time of the evening breeze, lasted merely 365 years before the darkness took him. Old men, too many years on the earth. And then there was Abraham, Abram, Abe. God called him by his name, told him his own, El Shaddai, God of the heavenly drumlins, the Orthons. Now they could talk freely, God and himself, of wondrous things, of a child to be born to him in great old age, descendants many as grains of corn down the sorry centuries. Aged 175, Abraham, patriarch, breathed his last, adventurer, one of the youngest of them all. From here, up on the hillock, near my old home on Ackle Island, I can see a pier that juts out into mud when the tide withdraws, with a trawler, timber-racked and bowled over, the wheelhouse a home where sea ghosts gather to whistle their seashore shanties. Here the man I worshipped told me how to dig down in the perfect spiral of the lugworm's cast to grab the creature dark brown and bristling, in a flat, leggy ugliness. I drew it laboriously onto the hook, then stood, a little alienated, beside him, our lines flung out from the pier's end. Old man now, racked and almost bowled over, I have some sense of the damage done by the human race under the heavens, overground, underground, and in the dark, dim, vast between-worlds of the sea. Father, son, generation and generation. So now, when I think of myself as other, 
It's as a stone high cross, chipped into shape, with stylized Celtic knotwork, its spirals, its serpentine windings, its spine. Those are crystals that were my bones, that a ruby that was my heart. I am, in age, just such slowly crumbling stone and rock, base yet firm to the ground, spirit entangled with all of Ireland and its islands. Rare moments when I am still, no sound nor breeze nor scent of rain, no light nor any darkness to disturb. There comes the sense of calm, late evening, God walking by the western shore, asking, though not aloud, do you love me? What then of the often vaunted wisdom of old men? The spirit of truth, that secret whisperer, seems to me to be like a surf softly breaking in the distance. Down on that Bonacurry strand, the tide gone out, I stand, eyeing the bowled-over trawler, a little stooped under my weight of years, somewhat lagged and slow of breath, like rippled sand under streels of weed. Here, amongst the rocks, I have come upon new wonders, the brittle bone debris, the feather mash of some unidentifiable seabird. For I have learned there is no pleasure to be found in the loss of any created thing, for even the individual gnat within the scrawling, vast tornado of gnats has its own world wisdom, born in time, and in time will die. There are small green crabs with countless tiny, dark and sideways hurdling sandhoppers where I paddle now, soothing my bones in the forgiving waters of the ocean. So do not speak to me of the hoarded wisdom of old men. It lies, I have discovered, in the flaking and hardened soles of feet that have walked humbly and with kindliness on the rippled nave of our beautiful and demanding earth. On this morning's programme, we heard A Man Like Brad Pitt by Dermot Bolger, The Madness of Rimini by William Wall, Vandal Acts of Light and Shade was by Mary O'Donnell, Pleony, a poem by Rita Ann Higgins, Bones was by Lanny O'Hanlon, and lastly, The Wisdom of Old Men by John F. Dean. The music today was Don't Go to Strangers by J.J. Cale, Volare by Domenico Mudogno, Every Grain of Sand by Bob Dylan, in a version by Elaine Flannery, Cadenza by Ludovico Ionaudi, and Cosmic Dancer was by T-Rex. And if you'd like to hear more songs from the late Elaine Flannery, her album Keepsake is available to buy on her son Mick Flannery's Bandcamp page with all proceeds to Marymount Hospice. Take a look at mickflannery.bandcamp.com. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. And if you'd like to listen back, go to the RTE radio player or the website rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.